Well, hey there, loves. My name's Lenix, and this is A Memory of Malice. I meant for this episode to come out the day after Thanksgiving, at least for the U.S. So I chose a case with that theme. COVID came and just throat punched me, and that changed all my plans. Hopefully when I'm done with the recording and editing of this one, it won't be too late, so it still makes sense. First of all, I'd like to say that even when it's not a holiday, I'm really thankful for everyone who listens to my episodes. You all are the best. And my co-host, Razor, is thankful too. Right, Razor? (laughs) On to the subject of this episode. We're covering the murders of Joel Guy Sr. and Lisa Guy today, and I do have to warn you that this is a grisly case. There are dismemberments, and it gets worse. If that's not your thing, feel free to skip this one. I made two very rough floor plans for this episode, just to help everyone get an idea of where everything is in the house. The first floor is my best guess based on the police body cam, but the second floor is just a recreation of a floor plan I saw during the trial. In no way are they to scale. I'll post them to Twitter, if it hasn't imploded by the time this airs, Instagram, Facebook, Tumblr, And of course, they'll be in the YouTube video. With that out of the way, let's begin. I like to frame every case, as much as possible, through the lens of the victims. In that spirit, I wanted to tell you as much about Lisa and Joel Guy as I could, but I couldn't find much detail about their lives. I can tell you that Joel and Lisa married in 1985, and that it was Joel Guy's second marriage. Joel Guy had three daughters from this previous marriage, Chandice, Michelle, and Angela. In 1988, Joel and Lisa would have their son, Joel Guy Jr., known by his family as Joel Michael. Joel Guy Sr. was affectionately known as Mike by his friends and family. I also know that Lisa and Joel's marriage was a loving one, and their family life was also ideal. Not only was the relationship between the two of them a good one, but Lisa's stepdaughters adored her. Michelle would say that she was the kind of mother she always wanted to be. Not to be left out, Joel was adored by Michelle's twin, Angela, who would even end up choosing her profession because of her father. There was really only one source of friction in the guy's marriage, and that was Joel Jr. In the fall of 2016, 28-year-old Joel Michael Guy Jr. was living a life completely subsidized by his mother. He didn't have a job, though his roommate would testify that he'd worked at an unpaid internship once. There was no reason he didn't have a job, no mental or physical disability that barred him from work, and no criminal history that made him unemployable. He just preferred not to work. Joel Guy Sr. wasn't happy about this. He and Lisa would often argue over what to do about Joel Jr. Joel Guy Sr. felt like they should cut the cord, or at least give him less money so he would have to get a job. Lisa didn't want that, though. Joel Jr. would insist on privacy, 
No one in his family was allowed to have his Baton Rouge, Louisiana address other than his mother. And that was presumably so she could keep signing the checks. He was well known to be a loner who preferred to stay on the fringes of any family gathering. His roommate described that he would often stay in his room and game in solitude rather than socialize. Lisa didn't have to work. Joel Sr. made pretty good money. Good enough for them to afford a very nice big house in Knoxville, Tennessee. The whole purpose of Lisa's working was to give her paycheck to her son. A son who was so embarrassed by her accounting job that he lied to his roommate and said she was an optometrist. Everything came to a head when Lisa and Joel Guy Sr. sat down and decided to retire. They worked out their finances. Michelle would later testify they even calculated how many packs of cigarettes and cases of beer they went through in a week. And they decided they had enough money, but not if they kept paying their adult son's bills. Lisa finally agreed to cut her son off. The pair made their retirement plans. They sold their Knoxville home and bought Joel Guy Sr.'s family home in Sergoinsville, Tennessee. They planned to move in after Thanksgiving and celebrate Christmas with the whole family there. And that's also when they planned to tell Joel Jr. that his money would be drying up. What's that saying about best laid plans again? objective to cut their son off was hardly the world's best kept secret. Everyone in the family text chat knew, so it's a safe bet their spouses, significant others, and children knew. Joel Guy Sr.'s sisters knew because they'd been told. What I'm trying to say is it doesn't sound like it was top secret intel. Not that it matters because I'm certain Lisa told Joel Jr. what was going to happen. She hardly seems like the kind of mom who would spring that kind of thing on her only son on Christmas. Lisa probably warned him that he'd need to get a job. Somehow, he found out, and he began to prepare for Thanksgiving. When most of us think of holiday preparations, perhaps we think of making a special dish, bringing a gift, or maybe even just getting glammed up before a party. Joel Jr.'s preparations were of a different sort. He started as early as November 7th, visiting an Ace Hardware in Napoleonville, Louisiana, which was about 51 miles away from his home in Baton Rouge. There, he would be recorded buying a one-gallon jug of muriatic acid. On November 18th, he visited Home Depot and bought a bleach sprayer, a spray bottle, two extension cords, and two digital timers. Later that same day, he visited a sporting goods and hunting store called Academy Sports, where he purchased a knife. Something must have been amiss with the purchase, however, because he was caught exchanging it the very next day on CCTV. Finally, on November 21st, Joel Jr. made a final purchase at a Baton Rouge Walmart. He was seen buying a 25-gallon blue plastic storage bin with gray handles. Security cameras caught him in the parking lot, stacking the bin into another identical storage bin already in his car before driving away. He made many more purchases from many more stores that couldn't be tracked down. 
He always made sure to use only cash, which made tracking his movements at a later date more difficult. However, we know he also bought bleach, disposable gloves, many bottles of drain cleaner, sulfuric acid, and at least five more knives. He was finally ready for Thanksgiving. Candice, Angela, and Michelle had all planned to come to their parents for Thanksgiving in 2016, but life intervened. That morning, it turned out that only Michelle, her boyfriend, and her sons could make it. Candice and Angela were disappointed, but everyone planned to be together for Christmas in the new house, so it didn't seem so bad. Weirder than the guest who couldn't make it was the guest who hadn't intended to be there at all. Joel Guy Jr. had turned up to Thanksgiving, which surprised everyone. No one had expected to see him till Christmas, and he was behaving oddly. Michelle would later testify how bizarre it was to see her half-brother being gregarious and friendly with everyone. He even offered her children a blue plastic bin full of his old toys. There was something false about it, though. He seemed to hover and she told how uncomfortable she felt having him at her back as she walked upstairs. There was a tension in the home, and the cause of the tension was revealed when she spoke to Joel Sr. He told Michelle how he and Lisa had informed Joel Jr. that they couldn't support him anymore. This would be considered inadmissible hearsay later, but my channel isn't a courtroom, and I want it to be clear that Joel Jr. definitely knew he was being cut off. At some point that morning, the family posed for a photo. Lisa, Joel Sr., Joel Jr., and Michelle's sons were all caught in a moment in time. Lisa and Joel's dog, Jake, in front. Joel Jr. smirks in the grainy photo, standing with his hands balled up in his pockets. He knows this will be the last family photo Lisa and Joel Sr. will ever take. of Thanksgiving passed in a normal, carefree fashion. Eventually, Michelle and her family departed to go home. Joel Jr. would be staying the night. Though he had never lived in that house, Lisa had always kept a room for him, and all his things were left just the way he liked them. Not much is known about November 25, 2016. We know that Joel Sr. and Joel Jr. went to deliver a boat to the Sergoinesville house that day but nothing else. We can assume that Joel Guy Jr. was on his best behavior during this time, waiting for the opportune moment in which to enact his plan. On the morning of November 26th, Lisa Guy was caught on surveillance cameras while shopping at the local Walmart. These short clips of her cheerfully going about her errands would be the last time she was seen alive. There were many reasons to be worried about the guys by the time November 28th rolled around. They had stopped answering their family's text messages and calls. Joel Guy Sr. had failed to call Chandis on her birthday on the 27th, the first birthday he had ever missed. But the straw that broke the camel's back was when Lisa Guy failed to show up for work on Monday. Lisa had never been even a little late to her job at the engineering firm without notifying her supervisor, 
Jennifer. Jennifer knew that Lisa had planned to have lunch with some work friends to celebrate her retirement that day, and it really wasn't like her to miss something like that. Concerned, she called the Knoxville Sheriff's Department and asked them to do a welfare check. When the first officer arrived, nothing appeared overtly wrong. There were cars parked in the driveway, engines cold. He knocked and rang the bell and received no answer. A cursory glance over the back fence revealed a doghouse, and he whistled for a dog, but no dog appeared. Not seeing anything actionable, he left. Jennifer wasn't ready to give up. She called the sheriff's office again, and again asked them to do a wellness check. She knew that something was wrong, and she wasn't about to take no for an answer. This time, four Knoxville County officers arrived at the home including the officer from before. Detective Stephen Ballard happened to be among them, and he began to notice some troubling things. The doorknob, the handle of the front door, was scratched up, but it also didn't seem to match the deadbolt. Usually when you buy front door hardware, it's sold in sets so that the colors match. But these didn't. When Ballard peered through a window, he could see grocery bags and cases of beer just littered around the foyer, like they'd been dropped there and forgotten. When the officers vaulted the back fence, they found something stranger. The back door was missing its handle, with only a hole where it had once been. The color of the deadbolt on the back door seemed to match the handle on the front door. It seemed someone had removed the doorknob from the back door and placed it on the front. When Ballard put his face to the hole where the handle once was, he felt a rush of heat and he smelt a strong chemical smell. After some time, a garage door opener was found in one of the unlocked cars, and the officers used it to gain entry to the home through the inside garage door. They immediately felt a blast of intense heat and an overpowering odor of chemicals. Thermometers in the house would later be catalogued as reading over 90 degrees Fahrenheit, or 32 degrees Celsius. As the officers began to clear the lower floor of threats, they noticed a slew of unsettling things. In the entryway, between the den and the kitchen, there were bottles of bleach, a bleach sprayer still in a box, and a bottle of muriatic acid. I marked all gatherings of chemicals with a purple square on both maps. The kitchen stove was on, and a stock pot was left on the burner on the highest heat setting. A doorknob with a realtor's lockbox attached to it was soaking in the sink. There was a veritable arsenal of guns assembled in the dining room, including a long gun and two shotguns left on the dining room table. And there were the groceries left out in the foyer, which contained uncooked sausage, lunch meats, melted ice cream, and beer. It's safe to say that the officers were probably plenty worried before they even set foot onto the stairs. Things were about to be even worse. As they climbed to the halfway point, a voice on the footage can be heard asking, Is that blood? Small drops of what forensics would describe as reddish-brown stains gave way to large drops, which in turn gave way to smears. At the top of the stairs was a latched baby gate anointed in blood, and beyond it a pile of bloody clothes, empty drain cleaner bottles, and blood stains. 
It was clear before they'd even stepped onto the landing that something foul had occurred, but the police continued to clear the home. Down the hallway, in the last room at the very end, a pair of dismembered hands lay in a corner as if forgotten. You can tell when the officers spot them in the video because horror creeps into their voices. Well, goddamn, one says, followed by another saying, I got one, probably one down here too. All of this is punctuated by the desperate howls of Jake the dog. The officers continue to clear the home, splitting up, while the officer with the body camera clears Joel Jr.'s guest room. Detective Ballard goes into the master bedroom. After a few moments, you can clearly hear him say, Oh my God. The officer with the body camera asks him whether he's okay, to which Ballard replies, insistently, back out. The officers clear the home, minus the room with Jake because of the potential safety issue, and back out of the home to create a perimeter. And then they called forensics. how to tell you what happened to Joel and Lisa without just telling you, but I'm warning you it's ghastly. The hands found in the exercise room, which I marked with a red circle on the map, were Joel Guy Sr.'s. They were found in the back corner of the room, though it's often misreported that they were found in the doorway. Most of the rest of the bodies were found in the master bathroom, also marked with a red circle on my map. They were found in separate blue 25-gallon plastic bins, dismembered and dissolving in an unknown mix of chemicals. As far as I'm aware, the liquid was collected. You can see them collecting it in some of the evidence video, but I don't believe they ever released precisely what it was. That's if they tested it. It could be that they just don't want the public to know what it was, which, you know, good. But we can guess from the crime scene evidence that it was an unholy mixture of drain cleaners. Some of you have probably already noticed the big red circle on my map of the first floor, and you've got an idea of what's coming next. At some point, I'm not clear when, investigators open the lid of that stock pot bubbling away on the stove. Inside, they discovered the head of Lisa Guy. Now that they had all the pieces of the guys, they did an autopsy. Or they did their best. The chemicals in the tub had done a lot of damage. From the little remaining skin on both bodies from their backs, they could tell that the guys had each received many injuries from a sharp implement or sharp force injuries. Because of the damage to the bodies, they could only be sure that Joel Guy Sr. had received about 42 sharp force injuries, many of which had caused blunt force trauma to his ribs, including completely severing several ribs, and one had severely damaged the bone in his shoulder, known as the scapula. As for Lisa Guy, she had 31 sharp force injuries. She had the same blunt force trauma to her bones caused by knife impact, including nine severed ribs. It's hard to say if there were more stab wounds or trauma because the damage done was so severe. 
The bones in Joel Sr.'s arms were quite literally dissolving by the time they found him, so there could have been more damage that was just destroyed. I did read an Investigation Discovery article that said Lisa Guy was bludgeoned with an iron found at the scene, but there was absolutely no evidence of that mentioned in the medical examiner's report. So, the police were momentarily baffled by who could do such an extraordinarily brutal crime. It didn't take much investigating to crack this one, though. The killer had left everything they needed to catch him at the crime scene. crime scene was gruesome. There was evidence everywhere. There were only a few rooms that were untouched by the crime. The master bedroom floor was covered with assorted garbage. Everything from garbage bags and a blender to a random pile of stuffed toys. Blood soaked into the carpet of the home, and the liquid looked so thick that it almost looked painted on the exercise room wall in one corner and there were full and empty jugs of chemicals all throughout the house. The crime scene investigators kept finding knives. There are six that I know of, and I've marked them with green X's on the map. At the bottom of that pile of clothing at the top of the stairs, they found a bloody stainless steel kitchen knife. There was another kitchen knife in the master bathroom sink, one in the storage room, and two bloody knives in the exercise room where the hands were found. But the last knife was found in the guest bathroom, and this is where things got interesting. The knife in the guest bathroom was a large hunting type of knife, marked with the letters USMC, or United States Marine Corps. I'm not sure if you're familiar with these knives, but the handles are made of stacked rounds of leather, like five or six per segment, then a spacer of metal, then another segment of leather rounds, etc. The reason I'm describing this is because the knife in the guest bathroom had a damaged handle, and six of the round leather spacers had fallen off. Strewn across this bathroom was also the evidence of someone's attempt at first aid. There was hydrogen peroxide, wound ointments, pain-relieving spray, used and discarded medical tape, and more and on one corner of the bathroom counter was a gray Walmart bag containing a receipt. Detective Ballard immediately went to Walmart to follow up on the receipt while his colleagues kept processing the scene. At the same Walmart where Lisa Guy had purchased her groceries on the 26th, Detective Ballard was reviewing the security cameras. During the investigation of the home, investigators found the receipt for Lisa's purchases, so he watched that footage first. Lisa seemed perfectly happy and content, and Ballard saw nothing suspicious in that footage. Next, he had the video for the second receipt queued up. They scanned to 3.25pm later on that same day, and saw a man with bandaged hands buying medical supplies and red-skinned potato salad before walking blithely out of the Walmart. That man was clearly Joel Guy Jr. So we know from this receipt that not only were his hands clearly injured, 
but he had left that receipt in the guest bathroom of the guy house. Joel Jr. had to have been in a house that was a crime scene at the very least, but even more evidence would be found soon. Unfortunately, a lack of investigative ethics threw a wrench into this case right about here. See, the Knoxville County Sheriff's Office needed to take Joel Guy Jr. into custody, but he had returned to Louisiana, so they relied on the FBI and the local police to take him into custody. The arresting officers decided they had probable cause to search Joel Guy Jr.'s apartment, even though they didn't have a warrant. Listener, they did not have probable cause. Basically, everything they uncovered in Joel Guy Jr.'s apartment, including receipts for more things he bought pertaining to the crime, was considered fruit of the poison tree and couldn't be used in court. Prosecutors will manage to argue around a lot of this during the trial and still be able to use things that they could have found through other methods but it did make what could have been a slam-dunk case harder than it had to be. During his arrest, police took many photos of a long wound that stretched from between his thumb and index finger and across his palm. There was another thing they possibly discovered during this search. I've gone back and forth on whether to mention Joel Guy Jr.'s possible sexuality but I feel a brief mention is important if only to bat down an annoying theory that keeps getting passed around. There are rumors that Joel Jr. was gay and that he was in a relationship with his roommate. This was bolstered by emotional reactions he had during his trial and a jailhouse phone recording. However, his sexuality has nothing to do with this crime at all. More rumors say that the brutality of his parents' death was maybe because his parents found out about his sexuality and they rejected him, causing him to kill them brutally. Which is complete nonsense. He was preparing this plan 17 days before the murder. We know this, he'd been caught multiple times on security cameras. That is not a crime of passion. It also feels like victim blaming, and that does not make sense. Joel Sr. and Lisa seem like great parents who love their children. Lisa literally went out of her way to support Joel Jr., and people are implying that she wouldn't have accepted her son. Joel Jr. was the one who kept pushing his family away, not the other way around. So for the rest of the episode, I'm going to treat the rumors of Joel Jr.'s sexuality exactly the way it should be treated, as a non-issue. things were collected from the guest bedroom that Joel Jr. stayed in. One of these was a laptop and a plug-and-play hard drive that had been left on and plugged in on the guest bed. The computer forensics technician realized that the computer was running BitLocker. BitLocker is software that keeps you from being able to examine files on a hard drive if you don't know the password. To simplify, don't come after me tech bros. BitLocker is actually standard on most Windows computers now. The computer was on and unlocked when they found it, and thus the technician carefully transported it back to their lab. However, halfway through copying the files, the computer blue-screened. 
It malfunctioned and shut down, and they weren't able to get any more information from it. I would have liked to have known what could have been found there, but that's all we know about it. The next item found is the most famous thing about this case. A day or so after the crime scene was found and cataloged, an evidence technician was photographing evidence that had been collected in the house. One thing collected was a backpack. In the backpack, there was a graphing calculator, an instruction manual for residential gas water heaters, like the one in the guy home, that had been printed on 11-23-2016, a black spiral notebook, and 11 books. Each of these books had Joel Jr.'s name written on the inside cover. We'll leave aside the water heater manual, and let's discuss that black spiral notebook. Inside was a class syllabus for one of Joel Jr.'s classes, mathematics worksheets, a bubbling scantron, and a handwritten checklist for murder. Joel Guy Jr. prides himself on being very intelligent, but this dumbass had not only written a murder manifesto, he'd also literally left it at the crime scene. I'm not going to read it. You can find it easily enough online if you're interested, but I'll try to summarize this plan as it's understood by law enforcement. Joel Jr. knew that his mother had a $500,000 life insurance plan that he was listed as a beneficiary on. He also knew that this policy was offered by her job, and she planned on retiring. So he decided to kill her before she could retire so he could get that money. He knew he wasn't the only beneficiary on that plan. His father was the primary beneficiary. So he decided to kill his father purely to get him out of the way so he could keep all the money. And he also believed that he would get more money if his mother was murdered, so he intended to make it look like his father killed her. It's believed by the prosecution that Joel Jr. asked his mother to get him some things at the store that morning. While she was gone, he attacked Joel Sr. in the exercise room, stabbing him in the back. He was probably injured during the struggle. When his mother came home, he somehow lured her upstairs. He attacked her on the landing at the top of the stairway. When the attacks were done, he cut the clothes off his parents' bodies. Out of all the gruesome details in this case, I think this one unsettles me the most. There's a cultural taboo about seeing your parents nude. Just this instant knee-jerk feeling of, oh, that's wrong. He treated them like they were meat, not people who had loved and cared for him. Every time I think about it, I get angry. He dismembered the bodies and put them in the bins in the bathroom to dissolve, sans Joel Sr.'s hands and Lisa's head. In his notes, he wrote about leaving DNA evidence under Lisa's fingernails, but it seems like he chose to use Joel's hands instead. As for Lisa's head, it makes no sense why he put it on the stove. He did every other thing in this case for a reason, if a fucked up, absurd one. But boiling the head of the one person who loved him unconditionally makes no sense at all that I can find. He actually used knives to dismember the bodies, which is rare. In most cases, you'll see people use hand saws or chainsaws. The effort it would take to dismember two human bodies with these small, kitchen-type knives is ridiculous. You know that's a conscious choice. He went to how many hardware stores? At some point, he got on the household PC and made prepayments for all his utilities for a few months using his parents' money. 
The prosecution theorized that this was to give him a cushion before he could get his hands on the life insurance money. Before he left the home, he set the thermostats to the highest setting they had. He wanted the heat to aid in decomposition. It also seems he thought that fingerprints melted in high heat. This is not true, though. As the fingerprint analyst during the trial described, fingerprints can melt, but it takes high humidity, amongst other factors, for that to happen. Heat can actually bake a fingerprint onto a surface. He went shopping at Walmart, tended to his hands, set his mother's phone to send him a text message at a future time in an attempt to create an alibi, and he left to return to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. He intended to return and finish his plan, completely dispose of the bodies and burn the house down, but he was thwarted by police. Joel Guy Jr. was indicted and put on trial for the murders. His defense was weak at best. They tried to keep all the surveillance videos that showed him buying the items out, but that didn't work. They argued that the state couldn't prove abuse of a corpse, which even the judge found laughable. They said his DNA and fingerprints being found weren't evidence because he'd stayed at the home. To which I say, it's where they found the fingerprints and DNA that matter. They found his fingerprints on the packages of medical tape and latex gloves used in the murder. They found his DNA on six blood-stained latex gloves, along with the DNA of his mother and father. They found his DNA on the knives, on the bloody baby gate at the top of the stairs, and under his father's fingernails. They also found his DNA on the cover of the notebook of the murder manifesto, which seems unnecessary given it was found in his room, in his backpack with his things, and had his classwork in the notebook but I guess the prosecution wanted to prove a point. Joel Jr. did himself no favors during the trial. He often sat with a smug smirk on his face, or he looked bored and yawned. When the prosecutor described how the bodies were left to liquefy into a, quote, diabolical stew of human remains, he actually smiled and jotted it down in his notebook. Guess he found the phrasing inspiring, the jackass. The jury found him guilty on all counts. They actually took a surprisingly long time. After watching the entire trial, I would have voted guilty in approximately 30 seconds, but I guess they really wanted to be sure. Also, you can watch the trial on YouTube, but I don't recommend it. The camera likes to idle on Joel Jr.'s face, and he's got the most punchable mug I've ever seen. He was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. So you'd think this would be the end of this tragic story, but no. Even during his murder trial, Joel Jr. was making trouble. He literally sued to get his share of the life insurance even though he murdered his parents. You can bet that got shot down. He also threatened to gouge out his cellmate's eyes to try and get his cell to himself. And as of a few days ago, his attorneys have filed an appeal for a new trial. They believe that since Joel Guy Jr. had a room in his parents' home and a key, he qualified as a part-time resident. 
They argued that even if he was an overnight guest, the police breaking into the home during their wellness check violated his constitutional right to privacy. This argument is infuriating, because it isn't an attempt to say that Joel Jr. didn't do it. It's just trying to get all of the evidence thrown out of court. He killed them, but they can't prove that if all of the evidence becomes inadmissible. The prosecutor argues that Joel Guy Jr. didn't meet the standard for being a part-time resident, since he had never even lived in the home before, and rarely even stayed there. Further, he said that any expectation of privacy or welcome he had as a guest ended the moment he attacked his parents in their home, when common sense says that they would have rescinded their welcome. The police had received multiple calls that created a sense of urgency, and they needed to protect evidence in the home, so they had exigent circumstances to enter the house. Exigent circumstances, by the way, just mean a valid legal reason to enter a home, like blood or screams, etc. I would argue that the missing back doorknob and the groceries visible in the foyer were both troubling enough signs to warrant the police breaking in to carry out their wellness check. Someone could also argue that the family dog Jake was in obvious distress. But I'm not a judge or a lawyer, so I have no idea how these things work. Hopefully, the appeals court will rule that Joel Guy Jr. has to stay in prison forever and ever. I hope he rots there. people who lost in this for the family. Not Joel Jr. I don't think he gets to call himself family ever again. No, Chandis, Michelle, Angela, Lisa's brothers, Joel Sr.'s sisters, even poor Jake the dog, who lost his only family. The victim impact statements in this case were heartbreaking and powerful, even though they were kept from making, quote, inflammatory statements towards the defendant. Alvin, Lisa's oldest brother, said that Lisa's love was taken by murder. He also said that Lisa and Joe were murdered. They were butchered. Their bodies were desecrated. Their spirits were forever harmed. He spoke of how his mother couldn't take the pain of learning of her daughter and son-in-law's murders, how she fell ill and died the day after their funerals. When Chandice got her turn to speak, she spoke through tears of how her parents were good people. And they loved him. They loved him so much. She continued, He has taken something from myself, from my children. Everyone in our family, he has taken something that we'll never get back. She spoke of her children and how they were scarred by everything that had happened. How they had nightmares, because of course they would. This whole case is nightmare fuel. When Angela got up, she told that she hadn't prepared to speak that day. For four years, I felt like I've pushed it down like it's not actually happening. Her voice broke with tears as she continued. But it's real, and they're gone, and my dad was my best friend, and I'll never get to hear his laugh again, or his just incredible hugs. I was robbed of having my father walk me down the aisle, and Lisa, my last mother on earth, was taken away. She was my best friend, too. I want to love as strong as Lisa loved, Michelle said, and you could hear her voice vibrating with suppressed sobs. She was flustered and very upset. 
My dreams were to spend the next 40 years at Christmas and Thanksgiving laughing with my parents. My dream was to hold my mom's hand, Lisa's hand, as she took her last breath. My dream was to hold my dad's hand as he took his last breath. People take moments like that for granted, but I wanted those moments with my whole soul. One of Michelle's remarks struck me deeply. I mourn terribly for my dad, I do. But I grieve and rage for Lisa. I cry for her because I wonder if when she realized the love of her life, the only son she had, the child she gave her entire life to, was about to murder her. I wonder if at that moment, when her heart was broken, did she even fight? That so perfectly encapsulates my feelings about this case. I'm sad about Joel Guy Sr.'s death, but in a distant, impersonal kind of way that you usually feel when you research these cases. But Lisa's death just gets to me. I think of all the ways she loved and supported her son. The way she worked for years just to give him her paycheck. The fact that he used her money to buy supplies to murder her. She gave him love, and he returned it with hate. One of the saddest parts of this case was learning from one of Joel Sr.'s sisters that Lisa was looking for a job in Sergoinsville. She never had any real intention of cutting her son off financially. He killed his parents for nothing. And I sure can make inflammatory statements. So rot in hell, Joel Guy Jr. So that was that. I got a bit choked up at the last bit, so I'm sorry if my voice sounded weird. A special thank you to anyone who made it this far into the episode. You are a star. You know the whole like and subscribe thing, I'm sure. Patreon, Kofi, and social media links are in the description. I'm not quite sure where I'm going to migrate to if Twitter officially implodes, but I'll keep you posted. I sometimes post cute pictures of my dog Razor on the Instagram if that's your thing. Remember, stay safe and stay hydrated. <laughs>